Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Our focus on the Asia-Pacific region continues this week with my guest, Dado Fazli Shaw, the chief executive of MX Global, which is the leading domestic crypto exchange in Malaysia. We discuss the Malaysian regulatory and business environment for crypto, and we compare it to other countries in the region. I learned that all cryptocurrencies are considered securities under Malaysian law, that each token an exchange offers trading on must first be registered with the financial authority, and that third-party custodians are required. Last thing before we jump in, If you weren't able to join me at Lynx Europe last month, then I have great news for you. The on-demand content from the event, which includes all new solution demos and the best talks from Amsterdam, is now available. You can go down to the link in the show notes and access all the content right now. Today, I am joined by Fazili Shaw, Chief Executive Officer, MX Global, the leading exchange in Malaysia. Faz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Ian. Thanks for having me and thanks for giving us the opportunity to kind of share our viewpoint from, I guess, the other side of the world from where you are. It is definitely the other side of the world from where I am in Washington, D.C. You and I had the opportunity to meet last year when when I was in Singapore, and this has been one of the podcasts I've wanted to do ever since. I think your background and expertise in both the Malaysian crypto market, but also across the region, is one that our listeners are going to be really excited to hear. Maybe we can start with a bit of your background, because I think you have a really unique entry point into crypto. You've done some amazing things throughout your career. Why don't we start with that story? You know, I've been in tech my entire life. So I went to university in the UK and started and sold a couple of tech companies while I was over there. 2011, I came back to Malaysia thinking, you know, I have this crystal ball of kind of knowing how to build a tech company because, you know, London and San Francisco were much more mature markets compared to KL. But, you know, I fell flat on my face because there's so many parts of the ecosystem which are missing. And so from there, I went into the VC space. So we were backing founders. I think like nine years into the VC run, I was given the opportunity to serve the nation. So I joined a government agency, Malaysia Digital Economy Corporation, which oversees kind of like the overall digital economy development. And it's really in that time, the two years I spent at MDEC, that I kind of saw, wow, that's this huge opportunity for this thing that I've kind of heard of before, you know, i.e. Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and digital assets. But when I was there, it became quite obvious to me that like this could be something that you could really kickstart a brand new wave of innovation and build new industries upon. And so leaving MDEC, I was just kind of feeling my way through trying to figure out, you know, what what you really need to kind of jumpstart this thing. And that's where I eventually landed into like, well, you need my hypothesis is really that crypto is going to go regulated long term, right? The exchange element is super important and super critical to get right in the beginning. If not, everything else can't really thrive into the in, in into the fore. And I think you told me, I mean, on this regulation topic, that it took you well over a year to get the license for MX Global to, to operate just in the Malaysian market, right? I mean, it was a long and arduous process. Yeah, so in fact, I can't claim all the credit. I'm not the founder of MX Global. My colleague Jason started the company off in 2017, really kind of commercializing in 2018. And 2019 is when the regulations in Malaysia were enforced. And MX Global was one of the companies that didn't get the, the license. So it was an arduous kind of two-year journey, convincing and negotiating with the regulator to kind of launch You know what we felt was a compliant yet interesting enough version of, a, of an exchange that could work within the Malaysian regulatory sphere. 
I recall from our previous conversations that the regulatory framework that Malaysia has put in place is quite strict. We're now seeing a lot of discussion globally about things like third-party custodians being a good idea, yeah. right? That's something that's standard in traditional finance, but had been absent in crypto. And we saw a number of failures last year where the sort of custodial responsibility was maybe not being done particularly well. Customer funds were getting commingled with the business funds. And then losses were harming the investors. I think the situation you've been operating under, though, is you've always had a third-party custodian requirement, right? Yeah. So I think it is fair to say that Malaysia's crypto regulations are, if not the strictest, but one of the strictest globally. So when I looked into the space, the comparable with like Japan, they're also equally very strict. And of course, you know, a lot of the regulatory environments, the jurisdictions are still evolving. And that's what you can see. Like, unfortunately, with what's happened with FTX, you can even see like the appetite of the regulator in Singapore, which even though they didn't license FTX, but there's the sovereign fund had a relationship with FTX. You know, as a reaction to that, you can see that their appetite is also becoming less risk-loving. But yeah, you're, you're definitely right. You know, third-party custody is something that at least in our jurisdiction is very strict. We don't hold direct access uh, or control over the digital assets. Neither do we hold direct access over investors' fiat deposits. So in both instances, we have to use third-party operators and those have to continuously be reassured to the regulator. When you look across the region at other markets, I don't think what the approach Malaysia has taken is yet standardized. Maybe, maybe Japan has taken it this far, but I think rules are, are somewhat more lax in markets like Australia. We had Caroline Bauer, who runs one of the larger exchanges in the Australian market, on the podcast last year. And I don't think she's having to, to do this for her exchange. What's your prediction on the future? Does the approach that Malaysia has taken, which is clearly, I think, a safe for a more conservative one, does that become the, the standard that other markets will adopt? I don't know if the Malaysian standard will be kind of like the de facto standard, but I do generally see a trend that a lot of the regulations become more and more strict. So Malaysia, actually, we operate within this kind of coalition of countries, the 10 nations of the Southeast, in Southeast Asia called ASEAN, and a comparable of that would be the EU. But the direction that both jurisdictions or cohort of jurisdictions have taken is very, very different, right? In the EU, it's kind of like was scattered and then now they're calling for like unified regulations across the entire EU. Whereas in ASEAN, the regulations are taking very different directions and even definitions across the 10 member states. Half of the 10 member states in ASEAN don't even have regulations enforced. You know, a simple example would be like in Malaysia, we don't have, maybe for better or worse, we don't have this argument of whether a particular cryptocurrency is a, is a security or a commodity, right? In order for it to be traded in the regulated environment, it must be a security because it falls under the Securities Commission regulation. So you don't see projects in Malaysia trying to justify that they're not security or that they are a commodity, right? Most projects are trying to be a security, at least under the Malaysian definition, in order for them to be legally traded on exchanges such as ours. Whereas if you look at Indonesia, Indonesia said cryptocurrencies are commodities. And so they've had many more exchanges. So in Malaysia, we have four regulated exchanges. In Indonesia, they've had upwards of 18. I kind of lose track because guys are getting new licenses and some are withdrawing, you know, things keep changing. But generally, we're not facing the same problems or the same issues that maybe you see in the United States. But I wouldn't say that some of the decisions and episodes happening in the US are not affecting us, right? But generally, you have, at least at the base level, a higher level of clarity in terms of the direction of the regulation in Malaysia and even if in markets like Indonesia where the definitions are different, right, they're treating them as commodities, the regulatory clarity relative to a market like the US, it is a bit higher clarity here. 
It sounds amazing. So I'm curious if all digital assets are considered to be securities, does that mean that there's a registration process that has to happen and have things like Bitcoin and Ethereum gone through that registration process? Yes. So the view of the regulator, and I'm not trying to speak on behalf of the regulator, but obviously ourselves as operators under that jurisdiction is that cryptocurrency in order to be traded in one of the regulated exchanges must be a security, right? Of course, the natural question becomes, what if something's not a security? Can we trade it? And that's still a great area in Malaysia, but Bitcoin, Ethereum, and seven other coins have been classified as securities. And the process under which they go this qualification. So obviously, when they started the, the regulated exchanges, the regulator made a decision on Bitcoin and, and Ethereum being securities, right? So the other seven has been kind of like this march that we've done over the last three years where the exchanges as the what they call recognized market operators have to justify to the regulator that this new coin that you want to list is a security and how it meets the definitions of security and to demonstrate whether there's local demand. Local demand is very important in the Malaysian context because we are fiat-linked centralized exchanges. So there's no stable coins. So everyone coming in with ringgit fiat and if you want to withdraw fiat, it has to be ringgit. So that's why demonstrating that there's local demand, i.e. the because the ringgit is also a restricted currency, right? So not everybody in the world has a ringgit account. That's fairly important. I think it's a similar approach in Indonesia. Uh, but, but both of these countries are very dissimilar to the Singapore context because the Singapore dollar is a lot more widely traded and the support for US dollar is, in simple terms, it's, it's much more common to have a US dollar account in Singapore than it is to have a US dollar account in Malaysia. This is fascinating. So if I were starting a new project and, and that project had a token, would I be able to apply and register that as a security or would it need to come from the regulated exchange? The process would be that if you were the project owner, you'd submit to the exchange, i.e. us, your justification for how you meet the definitions in the regulations. And we would vet through that. And if we agree, we would submit an endorsement, right? Basically, we'd submit an application on your behalf to seek endorsement from the regulator. And then it would be, I guess, quote unquote, legally tradable on the exchange. I think this is such an interesting approach because right now in the American situation, we have the complexity of, well, our digital assets commodities or securities. But then we also have this conversation going on, particularly as it relates to any of the, the DeFi tokens about, well, if they are securities, who would go about registering them? Who actually has the authority to file appropriate disclosures? It's not like there's a board of directors or a, a CEO necessarily. And so the decentralization side of the equation gets much more complex, but it seems like it's been solved in your market by saying, well, no, the trading venue has to register the asset and that resolves the question of who has responsibility for kind of vetting the quality and continuing to provide reasonable disclosure to the investor audience. That's pretty powerful, I think. Well, yes and no, right? I, I would agree that this kind of solves the problem, if you will, for fairly established cryptocurrencies of which there are very, very few, right? So you're talking about Bitcoin, Ethereum, maybe you can argue Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin. But if you imagine someone starting a brand new project, how do you establish market penetration before it being traded on the exchange? Like how do you get distribution of a new project? As much as we may be fairly uh, mature and safe in some regards for the public going to crypto, there still remains gaps. So we've had a few projects which are, you know, in relative terms, fairly new, you know, two or three years into the market, fairly low market share in Malaysia, but respectable market cap. 
globally. It becomes a challenge then, right, to kind of say, do Malaysians really want this? And then how do you maintain a healthy order book if the awareness for that token is so small? And so it becomes kind of like this catch-22 situation, right? You can't build awareness because you're not legally recognized. But at the same time, if you don't have enough awareness, then you won't have healthy trading volume. And so you don't want the perception of you being a rock pool post-listing in a regulated exchange, right? So we don't have everything figured out, but I think if I were a regulator, I'm looking at it from the point of view of investor protection, specifically retail investor protection. And I think in that regard, the set of regulations that we've had to abide by in Malaysia have done a fairly good job of minimizing the contagion, right? Uh, as, as you call the aftermath of a few of the episodes last year. Yeah, so we're, we're fairly sheltered in that way. But at the same time, maybe for the DJs out there, it's just not as exciting and volatile a market as they may, you know, they may <laughs> want it to be. That may be a good thing. I'm not sure. But I'm curious as we start to talk a little bit about users, are citizens allowed to trade on non-regulated exchanges? Like, are you able to open an account on an international exchange that isn't regulated in the country at all? And is it is it reasonably easy to transfer fiat out to that exchange and buy cryptocurrency that's outside of the list of registered securities? So that's a great question, right? What a lot of people have to understand is that regulators regulate the operators. So they don't regulate the public itself, they regulate the ones providing the service. So with MX Global, we're regulated. So we can advertise, we can do fairly, you know, we can be fairly open about the fact that we're an exchange. But it is atypical for a regulator to go to the specific members of the public and say, you can do this or you can't do that. So Malaysia is fairly similar in other markets in the sense that if there were an international exchange that had in some way, shape or form marketed to a specific country, and that becomes evidence to the regulator, the regulator then may issue a cease and desist or a warning and then they would have to stop those activities, right? So the simple answer is that it's a buyer's beware kind of approach. With your own property, i.e. your own money, you could in theory open up an account in any exchange anywhere in the world that would accept it. However, that relationship that you would have to exchange is not governed under this jurisdiction. And so the big challenge for a regulator is that when a, a retail investor does that, not understanding fully the risk that they're putting themselves in, the outcome's never so well thought through, right? If something happens, they get burned or they get wrecked, they're going to be looking for someone to protect them and they're going to, they're going to go to the regulator and say, hey, I opened on exchange change ABC, why didn't you stop me? You know, why didn't you save me? So generally we advise a lot of our users and also the general public, like it is entirely your call where you want to make an account, if you can make an account, but you must be aware that it's only these four exchanges which fall under this jurisdiction. Now on the question of can they go in and out of fiat, ringgit fiat fairly easily, that's another interesting question, right? Strictly speaking, you can't. Strictly speaking, if you have a bank account in Malaysia and you try to deposit into a foreign exchange, even using telegraphic transfer, the banks will query you. You know, they will ask you, why are you transferring to this company, which to the bank's knowledge is an exchange. And in most cases, it would be uh, a bit difficult for you to complete that transaction. But of course, in practice, what happens is that a lot of people use P2P, right? So they're doing P2P to stable coins and then using that to go to wherever they want to go. Or even to that point, they might come out to MX, buy Bitcoin or Ethereum, and then they might transfer that and then trade it on a, an unregulated exchange. Now, we don't necessarily discourage our users, right? We want our users to feel emboldened that they are fully in control of their funds. Because even though we're a centralized exchange, yes, not your keys, but we want to honor them as your coins. But at the same time, we try to invest quite a lot into letting them know, you know, what are the risks that they're putting themselves into if they do this. But eventually, if it's really the call to transfer it out to another exchange, we'll honor that, right? As we think it's our duty as uh, dutiful operators to do. 
you know, I think no, no country in the world has really regulated P2P successfully. And, I, and of course, by the nature of P2P, I think we can understand why. But for me, that's probably going to be the, one of the cornerstones of like, you know, if you look at crypto 20, 30 years from now, there must be a more efficient alternative and a better user experience than P2P. Because to be honest, the deposit and withdrawal experience on a regulated centralized exchange, it is inferior to the P2P experience, right? P2P is like you transfer the money now. Two minutes later, you've got additional assets. And so personally, I think in the regulated space, you need to figure out something as good, if not better than that experience in order for you to gain the confidence of the overall market. What do you imagine that looks like? Is it a central bank issued digital currency? Is it a stable coin that's maybe like uh, issued by a big bank or something else entirely? Do you have an idea? I have a couple of guesses, right? I think like scenarios that could play out in a market like Malaysia. Number one, I think CBDCs, and this may be an unpopular opinion, depending on your the demographic of your, of your listeners. If CBDCs in small markets like Malaysia were to be successful, it wouldn't be because people recognize them as CBDCs. It's just because they work. I think CBDC adoption would probably come without the conscious appreciation by the user. They're just using it to pay for stuff or they're using it to honor transfers, you know. And if it works, then nobody asks, What's the technology behind instant bank transfers today? Nobody does. So that brings me to my second scenario I think is possible, right? So yes, number one, maybe CBDC is a way that countries like Malaysia solve it. Number two is like countries like Malaysia already have fairly efficient financial infrastructure in terms of internet banking. So we're, we're one of those classic cases where, you know, we went from a debit card economy to a credit card economy to like an e-wallet economy, right? Today, you can send me money five or 10 different ways, not just my bank account. And I think if that were extended to the exchanges, instant bank transfers, to credit the ringgit balance, personally, I think that probably be the thing that changes the scenario the most for the users. The third really is that people under some set of conditions kind of revolt against the government and then there's a huge distrust of the government. And then suddenly you see this huge uptake into unbanking yourself and going into a stable coin. So I'm pretty sure every central banker is confident that's not going to happen in their country. But I wouldn't count it out because there is, in many countries, a sentiment that like you can't really trust your bank or you can't really trust the government. You just look at like countries like Venezuela. And I mean, I would guess that they would think that they could have done a better job of managing their money than putting it in the hands of banks. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious from a user base perspective, what is drawing people into crypto in your opinion and, and what are they doing with it? Is it primarily an investment vehicle? Is it something else? What do you see as the big drivers in the market? I think the classic term that we hear thrown around is like, you know, it's an inflation hedge. Maybe the users don't call it an inflation hedge, but they do see it as an alternative to kind of like other stable yield assets. So FOMO, I think definitely plays a huge part in kind of crypto adoption in Malaysia. We can see it clearly from our demographic, right? In MX, the demographic is very clearly the 24 to 37, 38 year old. These are guys who have friends who are crypto bros and have, even when we interview our users, they say, oh, you know, I have a friend who's, who's had outsized returns. So I'm starting with the basics by buying Bitcoin. Or, you know, I'm starting with the majors, right? Where at least the perception that they have is that it can't go wrong. I guess they, they're thinking long-term it's going to be up and to the right. The learning curve, and friction going to crypto is actually quite arduous, right? Once you want to go beyond a centralized exchange, you have to understand like how self-custody wallets work, like uh, skip a heartbeat every time you, tra you transfer something over the Ethereum network, right? You have no idea whether, is it really happening? Is it really going through? So we do see a huge drop-off of people who were so keen on going into crypto and starting off with Bitcoin, thinking that they're going to go into the altcoins, but then they try that 
they get their, their feet wet a bit and they say, oh, wow, it's actually quite nerve-wracking. So then we do get requests of like, there's all coins I would like to buy. Can you make it available in MX? And then we get back into the problem that I shared with you before, right? Well, it's great if 100 guys tell me that they want to have a coin, but it's 100 guys enough to sustain an auto book, right? And in most cases, it's not. How about things like staking? Is that becoming popular or particularly with the Ethereum upgrade that happened last year? It seems like globally, there's just been a huge awakening or interest in staking. But, you know, obviously here in the US, we're, we're seeing some adverse rulings from regulators about the ability to offer staking products. Is that even legal in the Malaysian market? It's not something that's outright illegal, but it's something that we're working through with the regulators. What I would say is that, you know, I think the regulator has an appetite for staking for the network. So kind of like if you're staking towards an Ethereum node and we provide that as a service you know, from the MX dashboard straight into you staking into a pool, that might be something that from a risk mitigation perspective is acceptable. But kind of the general term of staking, you know, over the last few years has been kind of conflicted to also include kind of like yield farming, you know, all of the other things that have promised outside returns. I mean, like, a year ago, who wouldn't want to put in some money for UST and earn way more than, than it costs you to borrow? But I think for those kind of cases, the regulator, you know, I wouldn't want to say it can see right through it, but it's fairly difficult to do a stress test on, on those kind of propositions and, and think that they might be safe for public. So I think for network staking, especially now with the recent upgrades in, in the Ethereum network, we might be looking at a product like that. But generally, no form of staking has been uh, offered on any of the regulated exchanges yet. And our regulators not just learning from like what's happening on the ground in Malaysia. You also look at like what's happening in the neighboring countries, right? And also in the major powerhouses. So there has been at least one incident where a regulated exchange has offered a staking product. And that's where the counterparty was, you know, the likes of your lending protocols and even though that was cross-jurisdictional the, the end effect was that the depositors from that licensed operator kind of lost all chances of being made whole in recovery so as operators we do have to find fairly creative ways for fair challenges to kind of make things work but there have already been incidences where being too creative and making it you know a product work eventually led to the retail investors eventually paying the full price and so I would think appetite is fairly low to introduce something like that to the general public yeah, the borrow lending experiment that kind of ran wild over the last two years seems seems to have not ended well for most participants. There were short-term kind of unsustainable interest payments being made, but not enough lending activity and certainly not at a rate high enough on the loans being made to actually make that a real business. It was sort of a momentarily inflated by the asset prices going up, I think, was and, and maybe some venture capital dollars coming into the ecosystem. But obviously that ended particularly badly for retail investors. I'm curious about the institutional side. Like where do the traditional banks and payment providers fall in regards to crypto? Okay, so it's similar to like how I understand it's playing out on Wall Street, right? So you have demand from your high net worth clients. They're trying to get into crypto and you as a bank want to provide that as a, as a service. But in most cases, you can't unless the entire value chain is, is regulated. And so there is space for innovation in terms of how institutions on-ramp into crypto and obviously also off-ramp in the regulated space. This is something where we do know a few operators who are looking at something like what you see in Chicago, where it's listed on a non-crypto exchange. So that's one approach to it. And I think it makes a lot of sense because a few things have to come together in order for a 
company, you know, I mean, not everyone's Michael Saylor and others forced to pay through, but like kind of follow his conviction for Bitcoin. But for a typical company, like three things that you need authority for, right? Number one is the tax treatment. That's the first thing that we were working on the whole of last year. Number two is the on and off ramp can still be in your vector center or default currency. So for most of our institutional investors, obviously it's ringgit. And the third is that the regulator agrees that this product is safe. And I think that's a nod of approval that's required in order for the companies to assure their own stakeholders that that's a, a viable uh, bet. So I'm happy to note that like as of the end of 2022, uh, right around the end of November, the tax office in Malaysia came up with the tax guidelines in the treatment of cryptocurrency or digital asset related transactions. So I think that really helped with kind of like institutions understanding, at least from an accounting perspective, what the exposure is going to be like, how that's going to be treated. What we're waiting for next is kind of like some of these products to dematerialize and be assessed by the regulator. So as of today, the way to do it is kind of to open a, a institutional account on MX, but we understand like from, from the journey that we've had with institutional clients, it's beyond that, right? They don't just need an exchange to trade on. Basically, they don't want to scalp the market every day. They don't want a dollar cost average. They have a separate set of needs that, you know, will be working closely with the regulator to kind of satisfy. That's exciting. The tax treatment that was established, does that mean that the cryptocurrencies are treated like any other security that a company might hold on their balance sheet? Or is there any material differences? Yeah, so Malaysia, we have zero capital gains tax. So uh, That's nice. Yeah. So I think that's uh, maybe a good point for some of some of your listeners to consider setting up an entity in Malaysia. So we have zero zero percent capital gains tax, but you also yep. have to demonstrate that it was really um, long-term holding. So if you trade crypto, then it becomes like business activity. And then you're subject to the corporate tax, tax rate, which is up to 30% in Malaysia. But if it's an investment, you know, if it's something that your company has on its books, kind of like an alternative savings product, and you can demonstrate that, that's I think what, what our companies are looking for. They're, they're looking to become passive investors in crypto and not necessarily traders. Interesting. Definitely friendlier tax treatment than we currently have in the U.S. I'm curious your perspective as we maybe move abroad to some other markets. There's been a lot of news recently out of Hong Kong where I think mainland China had sort of ruled adversely against crypto. We saw all of the, the crypto miners kind of leave the country. It seemed like there was some direction from China to the Hong Kong government. And the Hong Kong government was kind of following that. And it, it seemed like many of the crypto companies were starting to move out of Hong Kong. And then that position was recently reversed. And I've seen a few declarations of Hong Kong's ambition to become a digital asset financial center for the world. What are your thoughts on that? Is that perspective right? Because I'm viewing it from very, very far away, obviously. Well, funny you should say that because, you know, the reason that we had to kind of like delay this recording because I was in Hong Kong last week. Oh, perfect. For the Web3 Festival in Hong Kong. I'd say a couple of things to this, right? I can't comment on whether Hong Kong's doing this under the directive of Beijing itself. But I think it is fair to say that Hong Kong doesn't do anything without China being aware that it's doing it, right? And this is not exactly doing it in, in a very stealth way. So I wouldn't comment on whether China is endorsing this move, but I would I would bet that China is totally aware that Hong Kong is moving in this direction. So that's number one. Number two, ironically, I was in all of these three markets in the times that they tried to announce this, you know, we want to be a crypto hub of the world. Hong Kong most recently, before that Dubai, and before that even Singapore, right? And you can see that the tale has kind of played out differently in Singapore and Dubai. I think it makes a lot of sense for countries which are already primed as financial centers to want to become the future crypto center because it's an alternative financial industry and market. Now, what I think is really interesting that I saw in Hong Kong is that it wasn't all the same players. Like, to be honest, Dubai and Singapore were the same guys, right? The same guys were exploring both of these markets. I think now, in retrospect, we kind of know, okay, well, the main motivators 
were like, well, tax treatment, tax residency, a lot of things to do with tax, right? But the use cases were very much, and maybe because it was also the flavor of the time, right? DeFi, kind of like stable coins, everything to do with kind of like alternative finance, right? But in Hong Kong, you see a lot of companies who are building base level technologies, right? Like you look at like custody solutions, you're looking at things which are bridging. Like I even saw a Hong Kong based stable coin backed prepaid cards, right? So the way that they're looking in the way that they're looking at digital assets is not just kind of hey, let's invest and let's kind of ape in a moon in, in some sort of coins. It's kind of like how do you build real utility with some of these digital assets? So if my one week in Hong Kong and kind of meeting the kind of guys who are fairly serious about setting up or having having set up in Hong Kong plays through, then I think what you'll see in Hong Kong is a lot more connection being made between TradFi and, and crypto. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And I view this as like a giant sandbox by China, if I can say that, right? I'm not saying that that's something that's going to happen in 12 months, but that may be how the bet's made if you were China. It's going to be fascinating to watch it. Now, you brought up Singapore. They seem to have gone the other way since that declaration of we want to be the digital asset you know, world financial center. And the restrictions and limitations seem to have been increasing in the last few months. Is that what you saw in, in your visit there? Yeah, exactly, right? I, I mean, even when we were down there last in Singapore, at that point, you hadn't really witnessed the kind of full aftermath or reaction towards the big global failures of, la- of last year's crypto, right? But yes, Singapore, in all of like four years ago, kind of said, you know, everyone come here and establish yourselves here. We love everything through crypto. We're going to be fully supportive. And I think to a large degree, the government and the monetary authority of Singapore were trying to be facilitative, right? I think naturally, some, some players in the industry were upset that, you know, maybe they weren't given an exemption. There were some accusations that Singapore was kind of choosing winners. But I think that's natural to expect that like if you invite a thousand companies and, and you expect your market to be regulated, you're going to have to put them through some paces and then just reward the ones who make it through all the way. Unfortunately for Singapore, some of those were established, either legally established in Singapore or just operating out of Singapore, became infamous for the wrong reasons last year. And so I think that's why, I wouldn't say reverse their position. I think they've contracted the position a little bit in terms of the openness, but I don't think it's game over necessarily for Singapore. I think Singapore has a plan to springboard again and make sure that the next iteration of Singapore's crypto industry is innovative yet safe. Last question for you before we wrap up the podcast. What are you excited about as you look forward to the year? And and, uh, this can be broadly across the crypto ecosystem or specific to things that you're working on at MX Global. What's on the horizon for you? I see quite clearly that I kind of like things like NFTs and digital art. Yeah, if, if I can put it quite bluntly, like avenues for pumps and dumps, those are going away very fast. And, and if they haven't gone away already, because I think the market has kind of learned how these things have operated. And the folks at Chain Analysis, uh, in fact, were, were telling me like, you know, how you recognize those patterns. So they've happened enough times that I think the market is starting to recognize that. And on the flip side of that, I think governments have really woken up to really what may initially have been a threat to governments, right? in terms of their, their sovereign currency. Now a lot of them understand, well, we can address blockchain, but we can't do that by completely ignoring crypto. So what we're very excited at MX Global is that we believe a few markets, which are going to try to be ahead of the curve, are going to try to prescribe how crypto can interact with the main state financial system. So with MX, for example, we do believe there is an opportunity for you to pay with your Bitcoin, right? That interacts with the traditional financial system. So that the settlement for the merchant is still in ringgit. And I think a lot of markets are going to lean towards that way because you, as you get more and more market participants, you want to build out utility for them. And if that utility is not trying to 5x, 10x on some NFT collection, which 
appeals to some people, yes, but I think if you look at broad base, right, people want to be able to spend the value that they've created. So I think real world utility uh, for crypto and not, not just NFTs. I, I mean, I heard like utility for NFTs is like repeated a hundred times last year, but I think real world utility with your cryptocurrencies or digital assets is the way to go in the near term. I love it. I couldn't agree more. The perspective about you know better consumer protection, cutting down on rug pulls, and bringing digital assets into the the average user where they're actually able to make their daily lives better is an amazing outlook. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and sharing your perspective. This was a terrific conversation. Thanks, Ian. Looking forward to seeing you guys again and the next time you're on the side of the world, or you know we get to visit the U.S. Absolutely. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode of Public Key. Our team's been working hard to make our content available on all the major platforms. So right now, take out your phone, head over to your favorite social media app. You can easily subscribe to our brand new TikTok, our revamped YouTube. You can sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter. And of course, don't forget to follow us on Twitter or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis. Last thing before you go, a recurring theme on this show the last three months has been frustration over crypto regulation in the US. Entrepreneurs really just wanna know how they can build in crypto and operate legally. Well, there may be some hope on the horizon as a group of House Republicans unveiled the key crypto market structure bill. My colleague and Chainalysis VP of Global Public Policy, Caroline Malcolm, shared her thoughts on LinkedIn. It's great to see this step forward for the digital assets industry, consumers, and policymakers in the US. Given our unparalleled view at Chainalysis of what happens on blockchains and our position as a tool for both the private sector and government to make this ecosystem safer, we look forward to digging into this legislation and working collaboratively across the industry and the aisle as this moves through Congress. If you'd like to learn more, as always, you can head to the link in the show notes and grab the full text of the bill.